And this is the first Sunday of Lent. If you're not part of, and you're not as understanding of what that means, um, there has been for hundreds of years a cycle of discipleship within the church. Not specifically just the church of the Nazarene, but the church of Jesus Christ. And it's a recognition that, that there, there is a growing pattern and encouragement uh, that really aims everything toward Easter Sunday. And so the church year in that context begins with Advent, not with January, but with Advent and the, and the understanding that Christ is coming in, in, in that preparation for and readiment for ourselves. Then it goes into to Christmas. There's two Sundays of Christmas that happen after Christmas in the church calendar. Then we have the Epiphany, which we've been in, uh, which is this understanding that Christ dwelled amongst us. And we've been focusing in the midst of that, and now Lent. And Lent is a 40-day period, not counting Sundays, of reflection and understanding of, of who we are as humans um, so that we can be prepared for the resurrection that Easter represents. And often in the, that church calendar, baptisms will happen on Easter Sunday in recognition of that resurrection. And I don't know about you, but I'm still flying high after last Sunday's service. I was just immensely blessed uh, by that time together. Uh, I don't know if you've done counting. I went back and looked. Um, 24 baptisms this past church year plus 13 that happened in the prison. So um, that's, God is doing amazing things and continues to move in the midst of his people. And so thank you for your part in all of that. Now, I invite you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 6 this morning. Matthew chapter 6, it's a section of the Sermon on the Mount that and we, it begins with what we always refer to as the Lord's Prayer. Um, and has this section about, to, to get into, before we get quite into that, if you are a parent, um, at one point in your life, you have probably uttered these words, now say you're sorry. <laughs> and if you had two kids, you probably also said, now you need to forgive them. Now say, I forgive you. And we instruct them because we want peace. We want resolution within, within this. And yet, I don't think it's hard for any of us to admit that even in the midst of saying, I'm sorry and I forgive you, that the reality is that the kid is saying, I'm sorry I got caught. And... I forgive you, but wait till I get even. Because really the question is, when we look at that interaction, did, I think, did forgiveness really happen? In some ways, forgiveness is a difficult topic in our world. Because not, it's not just kids who do this. 
Th- think about it. We, we live in a culture that loves to give the non-apology apology. It, it goes something like this. I'm sorry you feel that way. Or, well, I didn't mean to hurt you. And in, these, in the end, these half-hearted attempts can often take away from the power of forgiveness that can happen in our relationships. It's these kind of factors um, that, that sometimes it's not even just that I'm sorry or, you know, half-heartedness. It's sometimes we try to force forgiveness, much like a parent can try to do. And, and sometimes, especially as adults, when we try to force it, it's, it can be unhelpful in the process of forgiveness. We, we might mean well, and we understand that forgiveness is powerful, not just to the person that receives it, but especially to the person that gives it. And yet, sometimes without even thinking about it, we can decide for someone else, well, you just need to forgive them. And we kind of say it flippantly, not really understanding fully what has gone on in that situation. And so it creates this atmosphere where the person that's been wronged is put in a position that it feels like they're being blamed for something that was out of their control. And it's these kind of factors that make this text this morning a bit of a challenge. And on this first Sunday of, of Lent, I admit it'd be easier to skip past these couple little passages in the midst of this uh, about forgiveness so that we could just focus on prayer and fasting because that's also a part of this passage. I mean, after all, it's the season for prayer and fasting. And yet Lent is also a season of confession and repentance. And tied up within the midst of that is, is an understanding of and focus on forgiveness because we are in this midst of this season, encouraged to confront the difficult things that are a part of life, like our sin, our brokenness, our humanity, and even in our own mortality, instead of just avoiding them, which is what we tend to want to do. So instead of just glossing over it and maybe making a few cliche statements about forgiveness, I think it's healthy for us to wrestle with this topic a little bit so that we better understand and live what Jesus is teaching here. In Matthew chapter 5, the, Jesus begins the Sermon on the Mount, and we have the Beatitudes with the, with the blessed statements. Or if you read it like I do, it's blessed is he. Right, Addy? We had this disagreement. And at the end of this Matthew chapter 5 section, it's in the middle of the sermon. Remember, when Jesus was preaching it, he didn't stop and say, okay, whoever's writing this down, I want you to stop and make a chapter divide right here so that people make a hard pause. It's for our readability and, and reference that that's there. So, so in this first section, he's, he's going through all these parts of the law, and he's saying, you have heard it said, 
But I say to you, you've heard it said that murder is this, but I say to you, even if you think and call a person this, you have committed murder in your heart. Yeah, you've heard it said that divorce, no, if, it, you know, I tell you it's this. You've heard it said, I tell you, over and over and over, he's redefining and, and a better understanding to the point that he gets to the very last of what our part of this chapter is. And he says that the, the thing is that be perfect, therefore, as the Lord your God is perfect. It's a call to a life of inward purity and holiness of heart in which his disciples demonstrate God's character uh, in ways that are completely countercultural. The world says do it this way. The world says seek revenge. Seek, I'm going to get you next. And Jesus is saying we live differently because we understand who God is, that he is perfect and we are called to be like him. And we're to reflect this other, otherness of God's holy love, which is displayed in acts of mercy. Because if the Christian holiness is merely an inward thing, an inward disposition, and does not lead to acts of mercy, what happens is it becomes a private pietism that's just about us. So this section of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus isn't just legislating a new set of laws, but he's providing a, a better understanding of what people, a people who live by the law, look like. And then, so in then chapter 6, Jesus expects his followers to continue to engage in customary acts of righteousness or faithfulness to God, but he gives us again a redefinition of what maybe that looks like because these acts need to come not just a, as a part of rote, this is the way we've always done it, but instead they come and reflect a understanding of pure motives, which is a theme that is throughout scripture because God looks upon the heart. So to some extent, the context for chapter 6 isn't just a call as we read it to give and to pray and to fast in certain ways. But it's a call against the hypocrisy that can, found, can be found when we do those things to, to garner praise, to garner attention. And Jesus says so three different times within chapter 6. And the reason Jesus has to address these things is because giving to the poor at this point was a common practice. The Jewish people gave at the synagogue and the pagans gave at their own temples. But the issue, what had developed was that giving to the poor became less about outpouring and outpouring of love and compassion and more about the attention I could get, the power I could receive, and social capital that I could gain. And at times, giving was viewed as quid pro quo, a way to manipulate God into doing something because, God, you saw what I put in that plate. Come on now. I need it. I want it. Where, where, where's mine? Prayer was a common practice. The Jews prayed in the synagogues, and the pagans prayed on the street corners and in the temples. 
And in both cases, many times, people were praying to be seen and approved by others. In Luke 18, Jesus, there's a story about the difference between publicly praying for show and praying privately to God. Where the Pharisee prays with arrogance and thanks God for all the things that he's not. You know, I'm, I'm so much better than all these other people. Thank you, God, for making me, me. And the tax collector in the background, in contrast, is praying humbly and with a contrite heart before a God of love. And then you have fasting. It's another common practice that Jesus is addressing. Jewish people would fast according to their law, and pagans fasted uh, in order to garner favor with whatever God they were serving at the time. And it was a popular thing for anyone who fasted to make themselves look more miserable, more destitute, so that everybody would know, hey, they're fasting. Because that's not their normal. We know there's a difference. In fact, it, it, they had ways of marking their faces and their clothes to demonstrate this suffering so that they could get the pat on the back that they were seeking. And Jesus' advice within all of this is not to neglect. No, no, don't, you don't stop praying. You don't stop giving. You don't stop fasting. It's not to neglect these formative practices, but to do them privately rather than publicly in order to avoid hypocrisy. So he declares, when you give, do it anonymously so that your left hand doesn't know what your right hand is doing because it's impossible to be praised if nobody knows that you're doing it. When you pray, do it privately and simply. God doesn't need to be flattered. He needs to be respected. He needs to be hallowed. He needs to be understand that he is a holy God. And when you fast, you go about your normal routines so it's not obvious that you're fasting. Jesus says, wash your face, take care of yourself. Because fasting is about formation, not about accolade. If no one knows what you are fasting, your motivation for fasting changes. But it shouldn't be missed that right in the midst of all of this, between the prayer instruction and right before the fasting instruction, is this instruction from Jesus about forgiving others in verses 14 and 15. And in, verses, in verse 12, in the midst of the prayer, he says, you know, forgive us our debts as we forgive the, our debtors. You know, other translations say trespasses. But, but really, in, in the Greek, it's this understanding that you owe me something. Forgive me, God, of what I owe you as well as what others owe me. So to, to, I, I was wondering, and I started looking, and so I started thinking about this, this idea of forgiveness. And I've asked a lot of different people. I got to go to NNU, and I started approaching people with doctorates. And I even, I approached some of our own people and, that have been teaching for as long as I've been in ministry. 
some questions, and I looked it up. What's the definition of forgiveness? That's a loaded question. But really, it essentially comes down to it's the act of pardoning an offender. In the Bible, the Greek word translated forgiveness is aphimi, and it literally means to let go, to pardon. And I, and I admit that I tried to think of a command. I tried to think, you know, in, in chapter 5, there's all these instructions, and you can go right to where Jesus found those texts in the law about, about murder and divorce and all these different things. I tried to think of, well, where is God's instruction to man to forgive each other? And I can't find it. There's lots of instructions of God forgiving man, and man repenting before God, but there's not a whole lot of instruction about forgiveness other than, you know, if, if you do, if you kill someone's ox, they have to give you, you know, you have to give them X amount to replenish. It's again this thought of debt. And yet at the same time, there are many stories of someone forgiving another person much like Joseph forgave his brothers. And the reasoning they do that is because they understand and are extending the grace of which they understand that they have received. That, that Joseph says, you know what? What you meant for harm, I understand that God has used to provide salvation for people. And so God... God has, has provided plenty of examples of this reparation and freedom between each other. And I think Jesus is trying to bring here this understanding and extends it significantly in this portion as he puts a call for us to be holy as God is holy, to be perfect as God is perfect. In the same way that God has done this for us countless times, in Ezekiel, God says, I'm going to bring you out of exile, not because you deserve it, not because you've changed the way you've lived, not because of anything that you have done in and of yourself. I'm going to bring you back and call you my people because of who I am. That I am the bearer of grace. I'm the one with the ability to do so. First Corinthians 13.5 teaches us that unselfish love is the basis for true forgiveness. It says it keeps no record of wrongs. Forgiving others means letting go of the resentment and giving up any claim to be compensated for the hurt or the loss that we've suffered. And many people are reluctant to show or extend that kind of mercy because, well, they don't understand the difference between trust and forgiveness. While forgiveness can be given whether or not a person asks for it, and I, and I understand it, it's, it's a much more powerful thing when it's accompanying with repentance true repentance. We, we understand that. But trust, on the other hand, has to do with future behavior. And it takes time to build or to rebuild. 
Let me put it this way. If someone hurts you repeatedly, you are given instructions by God to forgive them, but you are also not expected to trust them the next time. Or at least immediately. Because you're not expected to continue allowing them to hurt you. Forgiveness isn't just sweeping things under the rug and denying it. Forgive and forget is not biblical. It's Shakespearean. Forgiveness, depending on the situation, may require truly a time of healing. I recognize that there are people that are deeply, deeply hurt that need God's loving hand to do something amazing within them. But if you hold on to a debt, kind of like that, that, that last ace that you've been hiding away to be able to play on somebody, you know, you can be, un- be sure that unforgiveness is still present. Matthew chapter 18, Peter comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, you know, we've been having this conversation over here and we need you to settle an issue for us because, you know, we've been taught that we only have to forgive three times. On the first, fourth time, we have the ability to just let them have it. Doesn't say it quite that way, but that's the intended thought. He says, so Jesus, how many times do we really have to forgive I mean, I'm tired of my, my brother doing this to me. You know, he keeps hitting me upside the back of the head, and I'm really getting tired of it. How often do I need to forgive him? Is it time for me to whack him back in the front of the head? And Jesus says, doesn't just say, well, do this. He, he gets into this parable about a servant who owed this huge, unsurmountable debt, but has it forgiven and then he leaves, and he just, it seems like just after he leaves the, the, the room that he was forgiven in, he encounters someone that owed him money of a much smaller amount and says, you need to pay up. And the guy says, oh, please, give me time. You know, please, please give me mercy. And he refuses to do so and throws the guy in jail. Well, word gets back to the person that that guy had owed money to that was forgiven. And he calls him into his, his place and says, I hear you, after I forgave you of much, you couldn't forgive of little. And it says he held him to account. It doesn't take much to understand that Jesus isn't talking about pennies in this parable. Jesus had pointed out, as I said in verse 12 with the Lord's Prayer, and again now in verse 14, that God does forgive us. He forgives us of much in the same way that we are called to forgive others. And the concept seems simple. If we're, if we're forgiven of much by God, then we are to forgive much of by others. 
And forgiveness is this incredibly important aspect that I think our society has, has turned away from and it wants to seek revenge and opposition and, and mistrust and all these things. And God is calling us to something different, something countercultural. And when we look at these verses in concert with the parable, we are reminded that forgiveness is supposed to be the response of those who have been forgiven. That we operate on a completely different basis. Forgiveness is at the very heart of the gospel. Colossians 3 says, Bearing with each one another, and if it has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. Even as sinners, God loved us so much that he sent his one and only son on our behalf to offer and provide a true forgiveness. In the same way, we are instructed to forgive those who do wrong against us. And not just for those, yes, it, it's, it's easier when they ask for forgiveness, when they repent and truly say, I realize I did wrong. But even for those who do things that seem unforgivable. First and foremost, forgiving others is obedience to what Christ has called us to. However, we also need to forgive others so that we don't grow bitter. Resentment is very unhealthy. And it hurts far, us far more than those who have offended us or anyone else. Hebrews 12 says, See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that there is no root of bitterness that springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. Because as we release unforgiveness and all this bitterness and anger that, that so easily come bundled together and, and hold us and weight us down, as we, we do that, we are freed then to live and to serve in peace and joy and that we can grow spiritually to maturity. In fact, there's, there's numerous studies about forgiveness, that, um, the benefits of it. People who choose to forgive the perpetrators of heinous crimes that have been committed against themselves or loved ones tend to be psychologically healthier on average. And we can recognize that holding on to pain and refusing to forgive can be damaging to us. And withholding forgiveness rarely hurts the offending party. And yet at the same time, I recognize that everybody has their own journey. Again, I can't just tell you, well, you need to just forgive it. Get over it. That we have a timetable as we work through certain things. And some will take longer to work through those traumas than others. It's, it's not all just about names. We recognize that there are people that do horrendous things to others. So if you're wondering, how do we move forward? It's not just about simple statements, cliche things. It's a bigger process at times in our lives. So first of all, acknowledge that there's pain. Working through that pain can only happen once you admit that it's there. It's okay to acknowledge how the hurt makes you feel as a result. 
But we are reminded about God's forgiveness at the same time. Reminding ourselves of the debt that God forgave us through Christ, even when we didn't deserve it. It can help us forgive others. If we've been forgiven much, how can we hold on to the grievances that are committed against us? And that's the basis for Jesus' instructions here. Pray that it would hit home in our heart and that our decision to obey would allow our emotions to catch up to that. Then we're called to let go of the hurt. I admit that the devil is an expert at getting a foothold in our lives and it usually comes through things like anger and unforgiveness. But the wound, especially when the wound is sensitive, don't allow yourself to replay the offense over and over. Let go of the pain and determine to move forward. This is where prayer is essential. And accountability as a body of Christ comes in with one another. As we want to move forward instead of being tempted to go and wander back into unforgiveness. And here's the, here's the here's important part. We continue to forgive. Forgiveness is more than just saying a prayer and getting over it. It's a serious decision that we make each and every time we encounter that person that we need to forgive. The process may be uncomfortable. It may be painful, but it's always worth it. And then pray for the person that hurt you. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 44, Jesus commands us to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So I encourage you to ask God to reveal his love to your offender in, in your heart. Ask for forgiveness and, and ability for him to help you with the, the emotions that you feel when you see that person. Is there any more powerful, think about it, is there any more powerful witness to the grace of God's transforming love than someone who can display true forgiveness for the per, to the person that most would say is unforgivable? Once again, we are called to a higher calling. We are called to be perfect like your heavenly Father is perfect. Be holy for I, the Lord your God, Am holy. It's countercultural in every aspect of life. Didn't say it's easy. In fact, God's word says you will be persecuted because of the difference. But in the words of Pepe Le Pew, viva la difference. <laughs> Sorry, Pepe Le Pew's the best French guy I could think of at the moment. We won't talk about his womanizing ways. But God seeks to give us freedom. True freedom. And I understand that living in this world, especially in the selfishness that we are often surrounded by and sometimes are a part of, makes it difficult but that doesn't mean it's not possible or that it's not worth doing. 
Pastor Barb talked about that a few, several weeks ago. The unforgiveness that we can hold will hold us often more than it does for the person that has hurt us. Seek God in his freedom. Seek his peace, his comfort. That we would then become a blessing as we encounter people in our world. That we show the counter-cultural way of Christ. His holiness, his ways. Not ours. Because remember, at the end of the prayer, Jesus prays, let your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I'm going to ask the praise team to come up here for us. We're going to, as we close, but would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, forgiveness is often a difficult thing to think about when we are the ones having to forgive. It's easy when we want it. When we want to receive it. Help us to forgive as we've been forgiven. Help us to live in a way that shows your love each and every day. A way that shows the grace that we have received. That we would live into your calling for our lives. As people who have put our trust and our faith in you. That we have received the forgiveness for our sins. We've received the forgiveness for uh, our actions and our attitudes that have been against what you have called us to do. Help us to live in freedom of your ways. In your name we pray. Amen.